This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. I feel like I need to backtrack a little bit and just talk a little bit about that first recovery friend that I found in the 12-step group. So my therapist had said we needed to have a group therapy. And I was kind of like, do I need a group therapy? Like, I don't feel like I need a group therapy. She's like, well, yeah, we... you, you would benefit from it. Like, let's do a group therapy. And so there we ended up with a small group of group therapy. And this particular friend, this recovery friend, had ended up going to an inpatient facility um, earlier. Like, her addiction had continued to just spiral downhill. Mm. And as her addiction spiraled downhill, I actually spiraled downhill with her. Mm. This ecclesiastical leader that I had talked about. With the me. second one. Yeah, the second one he would be like, well, what can we do for this person? Like, I would go to him for help for me, and we would end up spending the whole time talking about, like, how can I help her? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's so good that I'm so much better than she is because then I can just help her. And this woman that she had referred me to in my congregation would do something similar. And Mm -hmm. it was was pretty much just like, how can we help this poor, unfortunate soul over here? And I wasn't able to get visibility onto the fact that I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. I need help. And I was... I was getting kind of caught up in the circle and destruction of her addiction in really a codependent way. Mm-hmm. I think at that point I'd kind of become an s myself. Mm-hmm. And so that was just spiraling out of control. And I had always thought as we shared our story that she had the same story as me. I'm like, isn't this so great? Like my best friend has like the same story that I have. Like this is so amazing. And she went to this inpatient facility, and that was really disheartening to me, because if my friend, who had the same story as me, was going to an inpatient facility, was I going to have to go to Mm. an inpatient facility? And so I remember just, she was really upset one day. She's like, I just told my story to them on the phone, like, I can't hang out with you right now. So she went to this inpatient facility, and, and she came back. And she kind of was like, here's some one of the things I worked on, but you need to stand far away. Like, she wouldn't let me come close to it to see it. So the day before group therapy starts, I get this massively long text from her that's like, actually, you don't know my story. I've been lying to you. Mm. And here's my real story. And she just like blurts it out through text. And I'm just like, whoa, like we've been recovery buddies for like a year now. Like, I didn't know this was your story. Like, Mm -hmm. she's like, well, we're going to do group therapy tomorrow. So like, I, I had to let you know. So we show up to group therapy and my friend who outside of, you know, therapy was a pretty, I think, charming, charismatic Mm. person. We get to therapy and she lowers her head and her knee is shaking and her leg is shaking and she can't look at anyone and she can't talk to anyone. And it was so bizarre for me because I was like, what the heck is going on? Like... What just happened to my friend? Like, Mm -hmm. it was so disconcerting. And she kind of kept showing up a little bit that way until it came to a head with one of the group therapies. Um, She was like, I don't want to go to group therapy. And I was like, just come, you know. So she came to group therapy and the therapist confronted her and was like, you've got to decide, like, for the safety of the group, like, you've either got to decide, like, you're coming to group therapy or you're not, but we can't keep having this in between. And she was like, well, I'm only here because Marie said that I should be here. Like, mm-hmm. kind of like putting all the blame on me. Mm-hmm. And like, 
well, yeah, I had been texting her earlier that day, like, hey, you should come. Like, why, why don't you want to be there? And I guess I didn't really understand that she had told her therapist she wasn't ever coming again. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she had relayed, relayed that information well back mm-hmm. to me. And so I'm like, yeah, for sure. Come to group. Like, why wouldn't you? Oh, right. And well, Marie told me I should come. So that's why I'm here. And she was like, well, do you want to stay or do you want to go? She's like, fine, I guess I'll go. And she walks out of the room pissed off. And thankfully, that therapist spent the rest of the group helping me and being like, I think you just got thrown under the bus. Mm. And we kind of talked about my relationship with her and, and different things. And I was too worried about her and caught up in her stuff to recognize like my own, that mm. I had just been hurt by my friend. But the group ended. And I remember I, I turned to the other woman and she, this friend had driven me. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get home from group. Mm. So what am I going to do? I turned to one of the other women who I barely knew. And I was like, would you mind giving me a ride home? Because I don't know how I'm <laughs> going to get home. And she was like, sure. Yeah, no problem. And I go outside and this recovery friend had waited for me in the parking lot. Mm. And so she was like, hey, I waited for you. So I get in the car, shut the door. First of all, I didn't want to be in the car with her. And she must have been stewing out in the parking lot the whole time we were in group. She didn't say one word to me the whole entire ride home. And she was driving a little bit erratically. Mm. And I did not feel safe even being in the vehicle. And I wasn't about to talk to her. If she wasn't willing to say anything to me, then I wasn't willing to say anything to her. I'd had, I have some back issues. And they had been flaring up that night. I was in and a special amount of pain that night. Mm. I remember just being in so much pain. And I went home and laid down, iced my back, you know, took some Tylenol. And my phone rings, and it's this woman in our congregation. And she's like, I don't know what happened in your group therapy, but your recovery friend's not okay, and you need to talk to her. And what do you mean you didn't even talk to her, like, the whole entire ride home? Like, this friend, like, knew everything that had happened. Mm. And it was, like, all my fault, And I was like, what? Like, she didn't talk to me. Wait, what? Like, I was so confused. And she was like, I'm afraid she's going to hurt herself. Like, I'm out of town. There's nothing I can do about it. Like, you call her and you fix this. And I'm like, Mm. I'm not calling her. I'm not talking to her. And she's like, no, like, she might hurt herself. Do you understand what that means? Like, she might hurt herself. So you'd better talk to her. I was like, whoa, okay. Like, all right. So I call this recovery friend and spend an hour on the phone listening to her whine about how awful group was and everything else. Meanwhile, I was like fuming inside because I was just like, I am so pissed right now. Like, this is not okay. Like, mm-hmm. none of this situation is okay. I actually, after I got off the phone, reached out to the therapist and was like, yeah, I'm done. Like, this, it's not okay. I am not going to be in between this. Mm-hmm. And the therapist actually called and talked to me for about a half an hour, which I appreciated. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, that friend, that was her exit Mm -hmm. from group. And a little bit an exit of our... I actually went that next therapy session. We did the Cartman's Drama Triangle. Mm -hmm. And I remember just having an epiphany as I was meeting with her and like realizing that there was these, these three women that we had... And that we were rotating around the drama triangle. Mm. That my recovery friend was often in the victim chair. This other woman in my congregation was often either in the rescuer chair or the persecutor chair. And always trying to shove me into the rescuer or victim chair. Mm. And 
I was like, this, I'm not okay with this. And I went home and I was like, boundaries, <laughs> putting some boundaries in place. And so I wrote down my boundaries with this friend and I asked if I could come to her house that day and talk to her. And she agreed. And she went really young on me again. She kind of did something similar to what she'd done in that group therapy that day. But I basically went and read through this paper and was like, here are our ground rules. We don't drive anywhere together for recovery related things. Honestly, I can't remember. That was the biggest one for me. Like, mm. I think being left without a ride was really a little, and the drive home mm -hmm. was like too much for me. I was like, never again. There were some other things I put in place. I think, especially with this other woman saying like, we're not going to talk about this other woman. Like, we're not going to get involved in like these conversations. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just you and me. Oh, that was the other problem was because we had the same therapist. She would also often complain to me about this therapist and get mm -hmm. really upset about her therapist to me, which then in turn would mean that I was upset at this right, therapist. Because it's your therapist as well. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out like, am I angry at her or is like my anger like coming from this other person that's mm -hmm. her client? And, and I was like, and we don't talk about our therapist outside of therapy. And she had one time mentioned that she'd been trying to get information about me from the therapist, but that the mm -hmm. therapist wouldn't give her the information about me. And I thought that was weird at the time. And I still think that's weird. I'm, I'm grateful that therapist held that boundary. Right. But I basically kind of laid down the letter of the law of this friend, like, these are no more. And the friend went young and kind of was like, okay. And then I went to this woman in my congregation after church and we met in a small room. And I said, here's the deal. I've talked to this recovery friend and all she cared about was, what did you say to her? Did you say it this way? Okay. She'll be okay. Cause you said mm -hmm. it this way. Okay. Okay. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go to her house afterwards and make sure she's okay. Okay. Like, wait, how did you say this? Did you say it this way? Did you say it that way? Like there was no ability for her to see like, this was honestly an incredibly brave thing that I had just done. Mm -hmm. Never in my life had I set boundaries before. And so to finally like, you know, it's probably those first attempt at boundaries where you're like, boom, right. boundary in place. And she couldn't see me. She couldn't see that that was hard for me, that I basically was being willing to lose my friend. My really one of the only good friends that I have in the congregation at the time. She gave me a lecture about Jesus and love. About how I just, you know, if you love Jesus, you just, you just love everyone. And that mm. I wasn't loving her. Mm -hmm. And I felt incredibly guilty so much shame for having put these boundaries in place with this recovery friend. And I had told her that one of my boundaries with her was she was not to talk to me about this recovery friend because she was always trying to get me to go and help that recovery mm -hmm. friend. Like my relationship with her was us and it didn't include this other person. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that ended the relationship with both of them. Mm. And yeah, sometimes what needs to happen happens, even though it can be a difficult uh, process. That was super hard for me. They were, they were my social world. They were mm. my recovery world. They were my first kind of foray into the recovery world. And I think that was my first time really experiencing that when you lay down boundaries like that, sometimes people react and are like, see you later. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that was really hard for me, mm -hmm. but I'm glad I did it. It was important, a big step for me, mm -hmm. I think in my recovery. And that really, I think about the time that I dropped her as a recovery friend was when starting the essay meetings really started more like I've got to find and when I found a sponsor and some of that other stuff. So mm -hmm. it kind of started transitioning into a different area and a different space. Mm -hmm. 
and and a good area and a good like it it went into the direction that it needed to yeah my ecclesiastical leader kind of again backtracking sorry it's not as linear as i would like it to be he he would say things to me when i would go to his office like i know what your problem is you're just lonely you need to date dating was his solution to the problem Mm. Or I would show up and he would be like, well, it could be so much worse. You could be having sex with people. There's so many people that come into my office that have done so much worse than you. Mm. Like he couldn't seem to see and understand that I was really distressed by this behavior and that I was seeking help. It was like, I, I his reaction to me was more like, I don't get it. Mm. Like, why are you upset? Like, this is no big deal. Like, And it was interesting, too. There were some interesting things that happened because I think he really respected that first ecclesiastical leader that I had and tried mm-hmm. to be like him. Mm. So he set up an office in his home as well that had that same kind of window and visibility. But the difference was he had a young family. So mm. he had a couple of young girls, a son, his wife, and, and they, they still were pretty young, actually. And when I would text him and be like, hey, I want to come talk, it wasn't like this regular, like, we talk about scriptures, this kind of set program thing that I was doing with the, fir- the uh, previous one. We'd just kind of chat about whatever. Mm. And he would always be like, you're my favorite person to see. Like, I just, I always save the last spot for you. You're just my favorite person to see. And so that meant that we'd start chatting about 10 30 p.m at night oh wow and his kids would go to bed and his wife would go to bed and we'd usually chat till like midnight and we would talk about like i would tell him my story he ended up sometimes sharing some of his story with me he ended up sharing like four different other people's stories with Mm. me that they had come and talked to him and and it was always in this way that like i trust you like i wouldn't do this with everyone but i'm trusting you with this and and this is how you need to go and help them And there was always this sort of like call to action. Mm -hmm. There was a reason he was sharing this information with me and, and I was special. And, and the weird thing was, is like, we would do activities as a congregation at his house because he again had a very large house in a very rich area. And when we were doing activities, like I couldn't even catch his eye. Like I couldn't even get him to talk to me. And I'd always feel so much shame. Like, is he so ashamed of me? Like he knows all my secrets. Like, Mm -hmm. Does he not want to be seen with me? And I still wasn't in that in crowd. Like, I still wasn't in that cool crowd. And it would hurt so bad to go to activities. I would come home and usually kind of cry because I was like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Like, I don't understand how we can have these incredible, intimate, vulnerable conversations in his house late at night. And then when we're at the social activity, it's like, I don't exist. Mm-hmm. And that was really hurtful to me. So I stopped scheduling appointments with him directly because that's he would always schedule it that way. There was another person, another route I could take, and it made it so it was at the church building. And it was really weird. Um, I was talking to my friend on the drive up here that he would sit in this chair that reclined and he would pull his leg up and he'd pull his other leg back and he would recline to the point that basically my eyes were visual with his private parts. Mm. And I would feel really distressed by that. Like, doesn't he know? Like, I'm, like, recovering sex. Like, why is he sitting like that? Like, Mm -hmm. and I, of course, would think I was the bad person for noticing it. Mm. Like, why am I noticing that? Like, I shouldn't be noticing that. Like, make sure you look him in the eyes. And I look back at that. I'm like, why are you sitting like that in Mm -hmm. front of a woman who's coming to you for help with sexual issues? And I had had, I'd had one particular meeting where I walked out of his office and I think he had again dismissed me like, 
yeah, it's not that bad. Like, okay, you masturbated once. Like, no big deal. Like, Mm -hmm. okay. Like, you're fine. Really, you're fine. Just go and serve other people and go and help other people. Like, you'll be okay. And I kind of got really pissed off at him. And I went, I left church. And I sat under this tree. And I was like, this is not working. This is not working. Nothing about this is working. And I remembered looking at this big, big tree that had been planted probably by the pioneers. We were at an older church building and thinking, if this represented the tree of my faith, I think it's, I think it's dying. Like, I think it might be dead. Mm. And I was like, but this is the only tree I've ever known. Like, what am I going to do? Chop it down? And I was, I was sitting under that tree and I was like, well, what if you planted a new seed and, and cultivated that and, and saw if that grew into something better? And I was like, I can't, God. I am scared to death. Like, I spent 18 months of my life serving for my religion. I grew up in this religion. It, I don't feel like you can separate me from it at mm. this point in my life. Like, it was, a, it was fused. It was a part of who I was. And my friend, the guy friend, he was engaged at this point. And I saw him come out with his fiancée. And I thought, oh, that's cute. They're cute. Like, all right. And I thought they were going to go get in their car and drive away. And instead, they walked over to me and sat down. And he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. Like, this tree, like, it's like the tree of my faith. And I've got to cut it down because it's not working. And he said, well, I have this feeling that I needed to leave church. And as soon as I saw you, I knew that's why. Mm-hmm. And his wife was also a recovering addict. And so she knew a bit of my story. And And we had this really vulnerable conversation together as I explained to them, like, I've got to find a new faith. And I remember at the end of that conversation saying to them, I'm going to do it. I'm going to chop down that tree that I've only ever known. And I'm going to look at every angle and every aspect and I'm going to build a new one. Mm. And he looked at me and he said, Marie... God loves you enough that he told two people who were sitting inside of a church building to leave church and come and talk to you. And I just was like, thank you so much. I think that was a game changer for me. That day, that conversation, I think, I think it was the first time up to that point in recovery that anyone had actually gone out of their way to help me. Mm. It wasn't, you're fine, go help others. You're fine, go help others. This person's worse off than you. This friend and his fiance saw me and cared about me and helped me. And at that point, I began to question basically all aspects of my religion. And that was a really scary process for me. But I did it. I I went through an angry phase. I went through an um, I'm really angry at God phase. Mm-hmm. I went through um, I'm really angry at my religion phase. I asked to be relieved of all service stuff that I had been doing in that congregation and basically took a step back. And that's when I spoke to earlier, that's when I found out that they weren't actually my friends. They disappeared the moment I wasn't serving them Mm. or being their servant, dare I say. That hurt really bad. I was, I think that was at the time that I had cut off the other recovery friend and the other woman and I kind of stopped coming to church. I would come a little bit for some time and sit outside or do other things, but I was really hurting at that point in my recovery. I was very alone, Mm. very hurting. And all this enthusiasm and excitement for connecting with others had long since kind of been squashed out. 
so the start of this women's meeting and finding the sponsor who actually was sober meant the world to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, it was like this new spark of hope. Like this is amazing. Like, okay, we can do this. We can change the world. We can, we can make this happen. Like I'm going to do the steps and I'm going to get sober. And I think this is where the problems with my, my first therapist really began. I, I did my first step and I wrote it all out. And first of all, in group, she had told us like to only write about our addiction piece. And we had had some discussions amongst ourselves, and convinced her like, no, a first step is like your story. Like you got to do the whole entire story. And so she came back and was like, okay, you guys have permission to do the whole entire story. And so I wrote my whole entire story and I had an opportunity to read it to my sponsor after a meeting actually here at Healing Pass. And it was an incredibly healing experience. Mm. She, she cried with me. We cried together. She saw me. She heard me. She held me through that. And then I went to the therapy that next week and I read my first step to her. And before I, I got a little emotional reaction from her in the actual session itself. And then I only had like a paragraph and a half left to read. And she stopped me and says, you're done. And I was like, I only have a paragraph like and a half left. And she's like, no, your time is up. You're done. And I was like, Ugh, I'm not okay. And she's like, well, we've got group in five minutes, so go walk around the building a couple of times, and then you got to be back here for group. Session done, over. She, like, ripped the paper. See ya. And that was her response to my first step. And I went home that night, and I think that was the hardest I'd ever cried Mm -hmm. and the most I'd ever hurt in a really long time. It was somebody that I'd been working with, somebody that I trusted. It felt like a complete and total betrayal of my trust. And my sponsor was also upset Mm. by this reaction. She strongly encouraged me to write an email to her to find some way to put together my feelings and confront the therapist and be like, this wasn't correct. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a couple of weeks going through the process and I composed an email and sent it to her. And she actually spent, sent me a longer response than I had sent her. Mm. And she basically took no accountability for her actions and placed it kind of like back on my shoulders. And I think kind of crazy made me a mm. little bit. And I shut down like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so like, I apologized for confronting her. I apologized for not being a good client. Like... I just, I took all the shame and just kind of shut down. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being discussed in group too. Like, oh, I ended up apologizing to her in group and saying how I had written her this email and it was wrong of me and blah, 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 like completely folded. And that, that's not how it needed to have been. Mm -hmm. Like, first of all, that should never have happened. Second of all, I would think if I was a therapist and I got that feedback, I would take it to other colleagues and talk to them and take some time composing an email. But that's not what happened. And I think from there, our relationship kind of was on crutches a little bit. Okay. I want to say. I'm like trying to figure out how to say like we started having more problems from there. She, one time in group, she upped and said like, for the good of the group, we're switching the night we do group. And I was in college at the time and was working towards a degree. 
and I had gotten this class that I've been trying to get in for like three semesters and I had specifically scheduled it around therapy to make sure that I could go to therapy in this and she moved therapy night to the night of class and I was like for the good of the group we're moving it to this night and it wasn't a question Mm. it wasn't a discussion it was like next week group starts at this time and that was the same week my class was starting at that same time and I was like no I have a class that time like I can't do that and she's like well then you'll just have to decide like do you want college or do you want therapy Hmm. it was like this ultimatum there was no there was no sort of like talking it through or anything like Mm -hmm. that it was just this ultimatum and I remembered talking to my sponsor and a friend and going to kind of my church place and really putting some time and pondering and prayer into it and was like then I need to leave group and I let her know and she kind of like wigged out on me I don't think she expected me to actually stand up to her and be Mm -hmm. like well if like that's the ultimatum then I choose college because I've been working towards this degree for almost 10 years now and I'm not stopping now like it's almost done and it was crazy like she had to rearrange all her schedules like she called me at work it was just kind of like chaos and unmanageability Mm. a little bit but we ended up switching the schedule back to the correct time and being able to move on with group specific to that therapist I was trying to get sobriety and I I, I'd been getting pockets of like three months Mm -hmm. five months like I was I was headed in the right direction I I was starting to have the right support I was starting to have a good sponsor I was starting to have a good group I I'd finally written my my date in my white book I was I refused to put my date in my white book for my sobriety because I didn't want a long list of failures. Mm. So I was unwilling to pin anything in the white book until I thought, I know that I'm going to get sober soon and this isn't going to be a long list. And so I pinned the date in. And we were doing some EMDR and my sponsor had kind of been like, you know, I feel like it's a little bit early in your recovery to be doing EMDR. Like, how do you feel about doing EMDR? And I was like, well, I've got this issue that, like, I think EMDR is the only way I'm going to get through it. And she was kind of pushing me to do EMDR. Mm. And we had some EMDR sessions. And I'd had just a lot of stuff come out. And I was completely overwhelmed. And I wanted to talk through some of the stuff that we had had happen Mm -hmm. through EMDR. So I go into the session and I'm like, okay, I want to talk about this. And she was like, no, we're doing EMDR. I was like, no, I want to process this. And she was like, no how you were going to get through this is we're going to do EMDR and basically like put the EMDR thing in front of me and forced me to do EMDR and I wear glasses and for whatever reason she would always have me take off my glasses when we were doing Mm -hmm. EMDR a lot of times it's standard not not required but most people do take off their glasses but that felt really unsafe for me I really can't Mm -hmm. I'm pretty blind without my glasses Mm -hmm. like fuzzy little dots Mm -hmm. by the time my glasses are off I remember we started on the target memory and for whatever reason my brain kept going to like playing the Nintendo with my brothers and she was like Marie like get serious like get serious this is serious here like we're doing EMDR and so I I finished the session doing some EMDR and I fell apart afterwards I I was trying I I had the urge to act out so bad Mm. And, and I was trying not to, and I was trying not to, and I was upset because I hadn't wanted to do EMDR. I had just wanted to process through things, and she hadn't listened to me. And I remembered that was probably, that was actually the first time I found, I had a little pocket knife, and I actually, it was, it was dull, as could be, but I attempted 
to make a cut on my wrist. It didn't even so much as bleed, like it wasn't like crisis phase. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I had done that was like, oh my gosh, I am not okay. Like I am overwhelmed. And then after I had done that, I went for such a nasty shame spiral. I did end up acting out sexually as well. And I went back to her and let her know that I had like here, like look at it. I've acted out, you know, these ways. And there was a specific acting out behavior that had come that particular time called female ejaculation. And I had been too scared up to this point to share that with her. I just, it was my most shameful part of what happens to my body when I act out. Mm. And I thought I was, again, the only woman that ever has this happen to her. And I had spent time like researching it and just trying to figure out like, what the heck is wrong with me? Like, what is going on? Like, did I break something? Did something go wrong? Like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And in my attempt to kind of do a first step on everything that I had done, I brought to her that that included female ejaculation. And she was like, what's that? Like, she had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. And it was like my worst fear of having to tell her was confirmed. And every week after that, she brought it up in some way that felt a little bit like getting it hit over my head with it. And shortly thereafter, she ended up deciding to leave the clinic where I was coming. And the very last session that I had with her, it almost feels like frozen in my mind. She she looked at me like kind of in the eye and then like tilted her head back and just laughed. And then looked at me and said, Marie, some of your forms of acting out and just laughed. I knew what she was talking about. And that hurt. Mm-hmm. That hurt more than words can say. I chose not to stay with her. And it was weird, too, because it was almost like I had this addictive bond with her. Because after she left, I kept trying to, like, contact her or trying to make an appointment with her. Like, it was really hard for me not to knee-jerk react and run back to her. And one of the other things that I hadn't mentioned in the process of all this, I had said my recovery friend, this was her therapist. Well, my ecclesiastical leader had decided that she was, like, the best therapist in Utah. Mm. So everyone in my congregation was getting sent to her. And we would sometimes congregate outside at church and talk about her. And usually it was very, oh, we love her. Oh, she isn't she amazing? Oh, yeah, I'm so glad she's my therapist. Oh, yeah, the ecclesiastical leader loves her. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. I was starting to experience these really hurtful things. And I couldn't say I'm happy with her. And I felt crazy, like, what's wrong with me? And I had tried to go to my ecclesiastical leader and talk to him about some of the things that was happening with her. And he would just be like, oh my gosh, don't you just love her? Isn't she just like the most amazing therapist you've ever met? I will always send everyone to her because I have just never met anyone like her. And then I would go to her and talk about some of the stuff that was happening with my ecclesiastical leader. And he, she, my therapist, would be like, isn't he the most amazing ecclesiastical leader you've ever had? Like, I just wish that everyone had an ecclesiastical leader like he was. And there was no ability for me to like, be like, there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with both of these leaders here. And so I'm actually really grateful that she left the clinic and I'm incredibly hurt that she chose to leave the way she did. I think if she hadn't said that to me, I might've actually gone back to her But I think making fun of me for how I chose to act out 
hurt so bad. I was like, never again. Hmm. Like, I'm unwilling to do this. And so I actually chose a male therapist, which for me, given that I said I haven't had many male friends, actually surprised a lot of my support circle. Hmm. They were like, a male therapist. I'm like, yeah, no, like this male therapist, that's who I need. Okay. All right. Like, give it a try. And I showed up to this male therapist and he was very kind and compassionate. I remember about three sessions in, he apologized to me for something he'd said the previous session. Mm. I went home and I was flabbergasted because I was like, I've had all these battles with my first therapist. Never once has she apologized or backed down on anything. And here's this new therapist that I've just met that was like, you know what? I thought about the response that I gave you and... I think maybe I needed to sound more like this. Mm. So I just wanted to circle back to that. And I think I went home and cried that day because it was a realization of what I hadn't had. Mm -hmm. And the first, I think, six months working with him were often that way. I would get done with therapy and I would be like, my head's not spinning. Mm. My emotions aren't confused and jumbled and all over the place. I, I'm okay. I don't have to spend my whole entire week freaking out about what I'm going to say to my therapist at my therapeutic session. It doesn't occupy so much space in my head. I can't get my work done. It's just, okay, I show up to my session. I say my piece. I maybe think about it a couple of times during the week and then I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And I never actually relapsed again after that first therapist. I got long-term sobriety with the second therapist that I had. And I needed that. I... I'm grateful for him holding that space for me. I can't imagine being a therapist. It would be easy to have a client come in and like outline like these are all of my experiences with my previous therapist. But I think he did his best to hold that for Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and to try and hold that for me. I think in a lot of ways, I wasn't ready to hold that for myself. I think I didn't want to feel all the hurt that came with it yet. And so a lot of times would kind of dismiss like, oh yeah, it wasn't that bad. Like it wasn't that bad. But now, now I know, now I can see it and you can hear in my voice that it, it's still hurtful. That was mm-hmm. almost four years ago now. And I still like, it still kind of hurts at different times, especially my first step. I've, I've recently been working with you to do my first step and I've been doing it slowly and there are parts where I finish my first step and you re- re- you respond appropriately. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Good job, Jackie. <laughs> and I'll go home and it's like a double grief. It's like the grief of the actual content of my first step and the grief. Because with the male therapist, you didn't share your first step, right? No, I was unwilling to share yeah. my first step with any After therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It took four years for me to be willing to share my first step. Almost, I actually think, to the four-year mark that mm-hmm. I started sharing it. Which kind of left a little bit of a blind spot, I think, for the other therapists in the clinic. Because I was unwilling to share my first step. And they're kind of like, her therapist was her therapist and group therapist. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't really know a lot about her. Like, what's her story? What's her background? And here I am like, heck no, I'm not telling you. Right. And we actually shifted... I remember coming home from that session where she said she was leaving the clinic and pacing outside. It was October. It was kind of chilly and calling my sponsor and crying. And I had recently read in Patrick Carnes about the idea of a free fall. Mm. That sometimes when things need to change really fast, you free fall. And you let things fall out that need to fall out. And you let things that fall in, fall in. Mm -hmm. And I remembered feeling this most incredible feeling that I needed a free fall. 
my ecclesiastical leader needed to go. My old therapist needed to go. I was still kind of in contact with that first recovery friend on and off again. Mm. She needed to go. The other woman in my congregation, I really needed to let that go. And I really needed to embrace this new women's meeting, my new sponsor. And there was one other woman in the recovery, my therapeutic group that I had started to get close to. And my sponsor basically said, I'm here for you. Hold on to me. And I went to my other recovery friend and explained, like, I think I need to let everything fall. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm here for you. And I really held tight onto those two for the next couple of months because I didn't trust my therapist. My new therapist, as kind and compassionate as he was, I was on like tiptoes anytime I brought stuff up to him. Like, how's he going to respond to this? How's Mm -hmm. this going to go? How's this going to go? And I wasn't fully trusting him. I appreciated him and I brought a lot to him. But I would say that the person I really trusted was my sponsor. And she was the one that I was really bringing everything to. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.